We are in Ephesians, and we're actually concluding Ephesians. So Ephesians chapter 6 is where we'll be. There should be a Bible in the pew there in front of you if you don't have one that you can pull out and look at. But we'll be looking at Ephesians chapter 6, verse 21 through 24. This will be our 44th message in Ephesians. We've kind of been going through it for the last year and a half, but this is the 44th one. We've took some breaks for Christmas, Easter, uh, we've done some Old Testament things, been in the Psalms in the summer, which we'll be doing again uh, here shortly. But 44, uh, it's always bittersweet finishing a book. I'm sure for some of you, you think we, it's the 94th message. You're like, come on, get it over with already. I, under, I can understand that. But in studying Ephesians and spending, like I said, a, a year and a half of my life now in studying, it's bittersweet. It is good to get it over with. But it's also been a joy going through Ephesians and studying this great book that the Apostle Paul has wrote for us, that God has given us through the direction of the Holy Spirit. Just a little bit of recap, if you'll remember. Paul took three chapters in the book of Ephesians to write for us some of the great doctrines of our faith. You remember early on, he talked about how God has chosen us before the foundations of the world. And if you're here this morning... And you've been saved by God's grace. It is amazing to think and to ponder on the fact that before the foundations of the world ever came, God knew that you were his. Think about that. It's astonishing to think about. He hasn't just chosen us in this way. He's also adopted us, it says, into his family. He's given us an inheritance that is ours, sealed by the Holy Spirit. Given to us because of the work of his son Jesus. And it's ours. It's our inheritance that we have been given. And nobody can take this away from us. And so we have a good father. Paul also mentioned, you'll remember in chapter 2 at the very beginning. How we find ourselves in sin and in rebellion to God. And he really lays out a very bleak picture for us as humans. The sin that we find ourselves in. Then we have that great, great verse in chapter 2 verse 4 where it says, But God we see that even in our sin and our rebellion, God has come and he's shown his kindness to us. He's shown that he is rich in mercy. And how does he show us this? By sending his son, Jesus, to die for our sin and for our rebellion, to do what we cannot do. And so as you go through chapter 2, we see there in verses 8 through 10, where it says we've been saved by grace through faith, not of works. It's not something that we have to do or something that we have to achieve. It's something that God has achieved for us through his son. And he does this because of the love that he has for us and that saving grace. As we continue on, though, in the first three chapters, Paul talks about this mystery that has been revealed. And it's the mystery that God has brought together Jew and Gentile in Jesus Christ. There's no more separation. There's, there's nothing separate there. He is the God of of all, and we can come to him, again, through his son, Jesus. And so then as we leave the first three chapters, you'll remember we get to chapters four through six, where Paul then says, if this is all true, if we are in Christ, if God has saved us by grace, if you are a part of the church, if this has happened, then this then is how we are going to live. And so he starts by saying, we are going to be united together. There's a unification that happens in Christ, and we need to walk worthy of this. And so he says, you need to bear with one another. You need to care for one another. You need to treat each other with gentleness. I think it's a great word for us today. 
gentleness, and care for one another. But in saying that, Paul doesn't skirt the truth. He says, but also speak truth to one another always. Be truthful and be united. And then we get to chapter 5, verse 21, in a verse that probably none of us want to hear or like, but it says, in fact, we are to submit to each other as a church family. We submit to one another, and we're there for one another, and we care for one another. And that's when then Paul then goes in to talk about our relationship as husbands and wives, as parents and children. He talks about slaves and masters. So how this being in Christ impacts our whole life. There's, there's no area of our life that can say, well, Jesus doesn't really have anything to do with this. No, every single area of your life, whatever, whatever it may be, your work, your church life, your relationships, your hobbies, whatever it is, Christ impacts those areas of your life. And so then Paul then went on, as we've been in for a while now, talking about the armor of God, how God has given us these great truths and this armor to protect us against the schemes of the devil, but also to stand firm against his schemes and the temptations that come our way. And then the last couple weeks, we've been focusing on prayer because Paul talks about how we need to be praying at all times. And Paul would even show his humility and say, please pray for me and where I am at, that I can continue to do the work that God has called me to do, even in prison, even in jail. And so Paul has walked us through all of these great things. And today I want to look at the end of the book and see the importance of it as well, but how it mirrors very similarly the beginning of the book. If you recall, Ephesians chapter 1, verses 1 through 3 says this. This is how he started his letter. It says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Paul's writing here to who? He's, remember, he's writing to the faithful in Christ Jesus. He's telling them of God's grace, of God's peace, of God's great generosity to us because of how it said there, every spiritual blessing. And some of you need to be reminded of that this morning. You're hoping that you can attain maybe to some special level of the Christian faith where you will get these spiritual blessings. Ephesians lays out for us and Paul lays out for us as a believer, as one who's been saved by God's grace, you have them all already. There's not some secret knowledge. There's not some higher thing to attain to. We have been given all these spiritual blessings already and it shows us God's great generosity to us. But today as we close this book out, you're gonna see some similarities in how Paul closes the letter. And you're going to see that Paul has a purpose in writing this letter, and he wants this church family to see it very clearly. So in Ephesians 6, beginning in verse 21, let's, let's close out this book. It says, so that you also may know how I am and what I am doing. Tychicus, the beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, will tell you everything. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. Peace be to the brothers, and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. So as I said, there's really two things I, I want to point out. First is this. Paul wants them to know how he's doing. This is how he closes his letter. I want you to know how we are doing and that we may encourage your hearts. And so he sends somebody to them. He sends Tychicus to them to take this letter to them, but then also to talk to them and to share with them how they are doing. 
I don't know how many of you have wrote a letter recently, probably not recently, maybe an email. Maybe you've done an email or something along those lines. But when one writes a letter, normally there's a part of the letter that exchanges pleasantries, you know, at the beginning, maybe a little bit at the end as well, to let the recipient know this is how things are going. This is how uh, I am doing. And we need to remember that Paul loved these people. He loved this church. He cared for the people who were there. And in, and in caring for them, he knew that they cared for him also. And so he wants to write to them to let them know, this is how I am doing. When we look at Ephesians, probably a lot of times we look at it and say, Paul wrote this so we can have the great doctrines, so we can know how to live. And yes, there, there's truth in that. But also, Paul wrote this letter in a personal way to people that he loved and cared for. And so he wants them to know how he is doing as well. You remember last week, we talked about the fact that when Paul asked for prayer, it's interesting he just asked for boldness. He didn't say, hey, I'm in jail. Could you maybe pray that I get out of jail? We don't see that in this, in this uh, letter here that we have, but no doubt, when he sends Tychicus to them, Tychicus shares this with him. Hey, this is how Paul's doing. This is what's going on in his life. This is how our journey was as we were journeying. You know, this is what is taking place. And so Paul sends this beloved brother to them to make sure that this is done because he knows that the church cares for them. And again, he wants this to be personal. And so he sends somebody that the church would know. He sends somebody who's with him and very intimate with him to be able to share hey, this is how things are going and doing. This name Tychicus hasn't really caught on in our society yet. I don't hear many kids named Tychicus unless they go by the short tie, which I guess they, they could. But Tychicus here is an overlooked figure. I dare say maybe you've never even heard of him until we read his name here, but he's one that we actually can learn from. Tychicus is brought up five times in the Bible. You see it in Acts, you see it here in Ephesians, you see it in Colossians, also in Timothy but also in Titus as well. So we see the importance of Tychicus here. It appears that he's been traveling companion with Paul. That he's close with Paul. He's been on numerous different trips with Paul. Uh, he was with Paul at least two times during Paul's imprisonments. We know for a fact that he went on Paul's third missionary journey, but there's a chance that he had been on other ones as well with Paul. And so this is a man that Paul trusted and he trusted him so much that when he would write these letters, he was willing to give the letter to him and have him go and take it. And probably, not just to Ephesus, but that he would then travel around to other churches reading these same letters to them as well. Because we know he, Tychicus took Ephesians, he took Colossians, and he also took the book of Philippians. Or Philemon, I'm sorry, not Philippians, but Philemon to these churches. And this would probably involve him reading the letter, potentially explaining the letter, there's a good chance that Tychicus is the one who actually penned these letters. Paul would say them and he would write them down. So you'd have to imagine that at times in their relationships, Paul would say something and Tychicus would say, what? What does that mean? Explain that. And so he had this intimate knowledge of Paul and his writings. So he would be able to go to these churches and when the churches would say the same thing, which you probably say when you read the Bible as well, what in the world does that mean? Tychicus could say, this is what Paul was saying here. This is what it means. This is what the church needs to be doing. This is how you should be encouraging. But you notice that Paul says, I want them to know how we are, but also that Tychicus may encourage your hearts. When you hear the word encouragement, you norm, probably normally think of the name Barnabas, encourager. But Tychicus is sent to be an encourager to this, 
to this church and to encourage the church. And so he's, remember, he's talking to a church that has been battered, that has been bruised, that is facing persecution, and he is there to encourage them, to help them, right? To, to support them and be alongside of them. He was so trusted by Paul that he was sent actually to take, if you remember, uh, this is getting a little deep, I guess, and I apologize if this is too much, but in Philemon, you remember why Philemon was written? There was a slave, and the slave was being sent back to his master. And Paul is writing, saying, accept him back as a brother in the Lord. And it's interesting because Tychicus is the one who is told to go and take Onesimus back to his master. Now imagine that encounter. Imagine having to go and do that. This man who was a slave who ran away from his master, and now your task is to take him back and to talk to the master and say, hey, he's now a brother in the Lord. Let's, let's treat him well. Imagine trying to mend those fences. What a tough job. But Tychicus was the one who was called to do this, who Paul trusted to do this work. And it had to be a stressful spot to be in. Tychicus was also called to be pastor in Ephesus when Timothy needed a break and he was called away to other work. Tychicus stepped in as the pastor. This also happened with Titus in Crete. Titus was sent away to do other work. Tychicus was the one who went to fill in as pastor of that church during that time. So Paul trusted him. He would call him a faithful minister, a beloved brother, and a fellow servant of the Lord. Now you might ask, Pastor Tim, why are you spending so much time on this guy for this reason? I'd ask you to join me in praying for more Tychicuses. More men like this. More people like this. And I'm not just talking about in a pastoral role, which would be great. We need more of those as well. But I'm talking about as faithful brothers and sisters in the Lord who can be trusted. Who you can say, if you have a question, ask them. They know God's word well. They've studied it. They know it. They care about it. When we need to encourage somebody, we can say, send them. They will be an encouragement to their heart. They will help this person out. Oh, if we had a church full of Tychicus, can you imagine the impact that you would have in families' lives, in neighborhoods, in a community? I don't say that just to sit here and lament. But this is a man, if you think about it, has been completely forgotten. Completely forgotten. And I dare say, if I were to talk to a lot of you and say, what legacy do you want? Do you, you wouldn't say, I would just like to be forgotten. Uh, when they bury me in my grave, I just wish everybody would move on and forget completely that I was ever around. Most of us don't have that in our heart and in our mind, and Tychicus might not either. But yet this man, it says, served the Lord very faithfully, stood by Paul, pastored at different churches, cared for people, took the actual letters to the actual churches. And yet his name is forgotten. But I dare say, and I know for a fact this, his name is not forgotten in the Lamb's book of life. His work has not been forgotten by the Lord and the work that he has done and that he was faithful to. Tychicus lived a life where he counted his treasure in heaven much more than he counted his treasure here on earth. And it would do us well to try to imitate the life that he lived. It seems he lives out what Paul has been teaching in Ephesians all this time. Well, second thing, only two points really in the sermon. The first one was that this letter was written so that they would know Paul, know what was going on, and that Tychicus could go and encourage them. 
and share with them. But second, Paul wrote this letter because he wants them to know God and he wants them to love God. As we read the first part of Ephesians there, in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3, Paul writes a great doxology. A doxology is a praise to God, and he said that. We've already read this. And this is similar to how Paul writes a lot of his letters. This is how he starts out, and it really sets the tone for the letter. Have you ever read an email before, and right off the bat, it's bad, and it just sets the tone? You're like, I don't really want to read the rest of this. I, I love getting letters like that. Like, Pastor Tim, I just want to thank you, but, okay, I'm out. I mean, you know, it's like, all right, I know where this is headed. I know where this is going. And I'm sure you've received that too in different ways. But Paul sets the tone of the letter by praising God and lifting up God and talking about God and his great blessings. And here at the end of the letter, Paul writes a benediction. Instead of just talking about these blessings of God, he writes it in a way where it's a blessing to the church because of the great blessings of God. And so this is how he, he writes it, right? He says, peace be to the brothers and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. He passes on this blessing to them and he, he shares this with them. And there's four words that he uses here that I want us to pinpoint on. But we're going to talk about it just in, in three sections. Because he uses this to close out Ephesians and he's been talking about these words all along. The first one in, in verse 23 there is he says, peace be to the brothers. Remember in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11 through 16, Paul would write this. It says, and he gave, the, he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Why? So that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunningness, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. So what does this have to do with peace? I can think of no more unsettling situation than being lost at sea and being tossed about to and fro by the waves as they go back and forth with really no hope in the world to be saved at all. And Paul says, I've wrote this letter to you and I've, God has given the church pastors and teachers and members why we do all of this so that we can be taught and so that we can know so that we're not being tossed about back and forth in different ways of doctrine here and there and all over the place so what does this mean paul wrote this letter to them so that they can have peace so that they can know god as we know god we start to know peace more and more and more Teenagers, there's a lot of teenagers in here today because you're going to go to the meeting back at camp. Your life, you don't know everything that's going on. And you're slowly making it to adulthood. And maybe you think that when you get to adulthood is when you figure everything out. I got to tell you, it's a long road to never figuring it out. You don't. You're just at the beginning of it. And it seems chaotic. And it seems hectic. 
And you have people telling you, if you don't pick the right degree, your life's going to be miserable. And they're just telling you, you're just like, oh my gosh. You just want to make the right decisions. And then the questions have to come into your mind. How do I make the right decisions? How do I do what's right for my life so that I don't end up ruining my life and end up in jail or whatever might happen? The answer is this. Know God. Know who he is. Know what God stands for. Read his word and know his word. And I promise you, as you know God more, the chaos of this world does start to fade. The fear that comes in this world does start to fade because you see it against the backdrop of God, the creator of all things. You start to understand why things are the way they are. And you slowly become more wise as you pray for that and you ask for that from God. He, he promises that he will give that to us. And so Paul's not sharing here as he, as he ends this letter to the church and he says, peace be to the brothers. He doesn't mean life is going to be trouble free. There's all kinds of trouble in this world. You're going to face it each and every day and all the time. We can't avoid these things. What he means is you'll live a life of understanding. You're going to live a life of security in Jesus Christ. Being in Christ, what does that mean? It means I am secure from the things of this world. Oh, this world could take away all my money. They can take away my house. They can take away all my property. They can even take away my life. But what's very clear, as we've seen in Ephesians, is they cannot take away the salvation that has been given to me by Jesus. They can't do that. They can't take away who I am. They cannot take away my inheritance that God has given me and is sealed in me through the power of the Holy Spirit. It cannot be touched. And so as believers, Paul's reminding this church that, again, has faced way more troubles than any of us has ever faced before because of our faith. He's reminding this church, if there's ever a group of people who live with peace in this world, it is us as Christians. We live with peace. Why? Because we know God. We don't just know who he is. We call him dad. We call him father. And he loves us. That's what brings us to the next words there. Peace be to the brothers and love with faith. And I, I group love with faith together. Again, we can go back in Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 2. I've already referenced these verses, verses 4 through 5. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Paul wants to leave the church with this great reminder. God being rich in mercy. Why? Because of the great love that he has for you. He loves you. So he couples this with faith. And we see faith is an understanding. The love of God the Father has for us. Faith isn't some ignorant faith. It's not this blindness to it. It's a, it's a faith that God actually loves me like that. That's what this says. God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when I was dead in my trespasses and in my sin, made us alive together in Christ. By grace you have been saved. You say, what is faith? Faith is saying, I believe that. I hold on to that. I trust in that with everything that I have. I, I trust that this is true in what God is saying here. That is faith. And it is through this faith, what? That the love of God is realized and enjoyed more and more and more. 
And it's a love that causes us to love him back beyond measure. When we, again, when we know God and we experience that peace, we say, if this, is God, if this is who God really is, then he should have my full attention. He should have my full love and devotion and service. And I want to do that because of this great love that he has for me. But then there's another word, verse 24. Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. And the verses I already read, Ephesians 2 and 5, it says, By grace you have been saved. I've said this throughout this book, but grace is a word that's thrown around and I think often misused and misquoted or at least misunderstood. Grace is God's free gift to those who have faith and believe. It's free. There's no cost. One of the writers that I've been reading is going through Ephesians, Ian Hamilton. I've quoted him a few times. He says, grace is God's undeserved kindness and mercy to judgment-deserving sinners. I love that quote. God's undeserved kindness and mercy to judgment-deserving sinners. Now, notice it says undeserved kindness. Now, I've heard a lot of people say, a lot of Christians say, I think I deserve this. Unless you're talking about death, hell, and punishment, you should stop. Because we don't deserve anything other than that. But yet, when we talk about how we are people of grace, we understand that although I am undeserved of kindness, God in his great grace and mercy has given me a judgment-deserving sinner just that, grace. He's given me love. He's justified me. He saved me, and it's all because of grace. We see the end of this letter, and I understand that you could just pass by it. And I would too, normally. But Paul, again, is reminding this church at the end. I was taught, I was taught in, uh, I can't remember what class it was, public speaking or speech or something like that. I don't recall, it was too long ago at this point. But you're supposed to, you're supposed to tell everybody what you're going to tell them at the beginning. Then you tell them what you plan on telling them. And then at the end, you tell them what you told them. And what I found out is that actually isn't enough. You need to keep doing it over and over and over again. And that's what Paul has now done in this letter. He talks about grace, love, and peace at the beginning. He goes on to explain to us what is grace, love, and peace, really. And then he finishes by reminding them at the very end, I want to leave you with this. Peace. Love with faith. And grace. And that's what he leaves for us. But notice this. As Pastor Dave said this morning as he read that thing in Acts. What does it say? It says grace be with all. And it doesn't end there. There's no period. Grace be with all. It's grace be with all. Who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love. Incorruptible. Paul reminds this church. That while God's grace is free, God's grace is not cheap. It's not something that was earned cheaply by his son. When his grace is poured out on us, it results in what? It should result in a love for Jesus that cannot be moved. It results in a love for Jesus that cannot be separated from us in any way. And so then what pours out of us as Christians is an undeniable love above all other loves that we may have. One of the things I remember, 
I wanted my kids to know. You say, this is harsh. I always wanted my kids to know. I love your mom a lot more than I love you. I love you a lot, but I love your mom more. I chose your mom. You guys just came out. I say that because as I talk about this love that should be above all other loves, our, our loving relationship with God, I think sometimes we can start thinking maybe we shouldn't have these other loves here on earth. No. You should love your family a lot. The Bible just talked about in Ephesians the unity that we should have as believers and how we love each other and we should. And it should play out in a way where we actually care for each other. We don't just have little false greetings in this place, but it, it extends outside this room and this wall into the community where we love each other out there as well and care for each other. But what I'm saying is when God's grace has been poured out in our life, then what becomes most important in my life then is, is God. And Jesus even talked about this a little bit when they would say, hey, your mom and your siblings are outside. And he'd say, who, who is my mother? Was he saying that because he didn't care about his family? No, he's trying to get the point across. I'm here to do the work of my father, who I love the most. Who is my life, who is love, who has shown me love we have, right? The love that we have from him. So I think what is a fair question as we end Ephesians is this question that only you can answer in your heart. I cannot answer this for you. Nobody else can answer this for you. And I want you to be honest about it, especially as we get ready to approach the Lord's table. Can you say that you love the Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible? An incorruptible start of love. I've seen many of people walk into this room, even kneel down at these steps and declare to many of people in this room, I love the Lord Jesus among everything. But then they get a job. And it seems like they love that job a lot more than they love Jesus. You don't see him anymore. Or then they get married. You don't see him anymore. Or then they have kids. Now it seems like I think they love their kids more than they love God. Their whole life changes around those things. That's why I ask this question. Do you love Jesus with a love incorruptible? Ian Hamilton, in thinking of this, uh, this point here, he goes back to the story with Jesus and Peter. And you remember, Jesus has been crucified. Jesus has come back to life. He's been raised from the dead. And he has this conversation with Peter in John 21, verses 15 to 19. It says, when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. Jesus knew what Peter was about to face in his life. 
Jesus knew that he was about to ascend to the Father, and he knew that these disciples were about to embark on something that they would never expect to embark on. And he knew, Jesus knew, that Peter very soon would die by crucifixion. Jesus knew exactly what he was calling Peter to do. And all the other disciples and apostles as well, they would all face death. Every one of them, beatings and imprisonments. In Jesus and in his love and in his great care and trying to care for these people, he shows us what he does here with Peter. He says, Peter, do you love me? Of course. Peter, do you love me? Yes. Peter, do you love me? At this time, Peter's frustrated. Yes, you know I love you. Well, then do the work I've sent you to do. It's the same thing that we are being asked. Do you love him? Do you love him? Do you love him? All I hear today from people of older generations than me is that the sky is falling for the church. That's the only thing I hear. I never hear anything positive. I only hear it is coming. Jesus probably is coming. It can't get worse over and over and over and over again. And I got to ask you, in the face of this persecution, do you actually love him? Do you still believe that God is saving souls? Do you still believe that he is the creator, that he is the justifier, that he has all things in his sovereign plan, grip, and control? Do you know him? And then do you love him? I can't answer that question for you. It'd be unfair for me to try to do that, but in the book of James, it does say that you will be known by your works. And how is that playing out then in your life? When you scan your life, when you look at your life, does it seem as if you love Christ in a way that is incorruptible? I'm not saying without sin, without struggle but in a way that is consistent to say, I love you above all other things. You see, this is always one of the problems that I see in marriages that end badly. At some point in that marriage, one of them decides, I don't know if that's true anymore. There's all of a sudden an out clause that wasn't there before. And when there's an out clause, in my experience a lot of times, it's, it's over. Do you love me incorruptible, he says. I think that's a good question for us. Paul writes this book to remind us all what God has done for us. And when we grasp that, it should draw us closer to him and in more and more of love with him all the time. That is the point that Paul is trying to make. The book of Ephesians helps us stand. Even when we're being beaten even when we're being pushed against over and over and over again. And why does it help us stand? Because it points us to the only thing that makes us stand. God. That's it. It's not your strength. It's not your might. It's not your fortitude. Some of you are so stubborn. You'll stand for a very long time on your own. Don't get me wrong. But your strength isn't found in your stubbornness. It's found in God's love for you. And then how you love him in return because of that great love. You see, today we get to observe the Lord's Supper together. 
And the reason that God gives us the Lord's Supper, or one of the reasons, is to remind us in a very tangible way of the love that he has for us. Right, the love that he has given us over and over and over again. The fact that he would send his son to die in our place, to have a broken body instead of our bodies being broken, to shed his blood instead of my blood being shed. He's done that because of his love for us. And again, it's this love that we hold on to. It's this love that in the coming days, and I don't mean to just say that when people say the sky is falling, that I don't sit there and say, I think you're right. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not sitting here to say you're completely wrong. I think we probably face much harder days as churches than we have in years previous and generations previous. But we still have the same source of strength that we've always had. It doesn't change. It's the love of God for us. And so when the writer of Hebrews says something like, do not forsake the assembling of yourselves together. It's not saying that so we can knock numbers and say, oh, we had this many in attendance today. It's because I need to be reminded, just like you need to be reminded, that we are in Christ together and that we can stand strong together in him. Don't give up. Keep loving. Keep loving him. Keep serving him. Keep honoring him. Even if it looks like nothing is working, it is. He's finished the work on the cross. It's over. Stand strong in the love of God. So we encourage each other to do that when we gather. And again, that's one of the things with the Lord's Supper as we observe it together as Christians today. We hold that bread and we hold that cup with the juice in it to be reminded of the love that he has for us. And the love that enables us not to be tossed about back and forth or to be built on sand, but we're built on cornerstone, a solid rock. No matter what the world throws at us, no matter what Satan throws at us, he cannot move us because of God's great grace, peace, love, and the faith. Let's bow together. Let's pray this morning. And then after that, I'm going to ask the men to come. We're going to hand out the elements and observe the Lord's Supper together. I'll give you more instructions for that, but let's, let's pray before we do that. God, I want to thank you this morning for your word. I thank you for the book of Ephesians. Thank you that you raised up Paul and that you called him, that he faithfully served. I'm sure not perfectly, but he faithfully served and that today we have this letter that he wrote to this church and how it can work in our lives as individual Christians, yes, but as a church family as well. God, help us to know the great doctrines and truths of your word more and more. While people are pushing back from that and saying there's no use to that, God, your word actually tells us something very different. That it is those doctrines and those truths that keep us cemented firmly. That help us not to waver. That although my body gets weak and I might fall down, although this body gets weak and I could die and perish, my faith can't be moved. Not because it's found in me, but because it's given to me by you. And so, God, I thank you for that love that you have for us. I pray that the words grace, peace, and love will not be something that we just throw around, but I pray that it's something we really know and understand so that when this world does come at us very hard, which they seem to be doing, we would remember they're not coming after me. 
the individual. They're coming after you. But you cannot be shaken. You cannot be moved. And so, God, help us to understand your love more and more each day. Help us to know your word. Give us peace in difficult times and troubling times. Encourage our hearts through your word, through the fellowships that we have here at this church, through the gatherings together. Help us to be encouraging one another to keep pressing on in the faith. Because, God, that's what you call us to. Help us to be the church you would have us to be. Those who love our enemies, who are kind, who are gentle and compassionate, caring for those in need and hurting, but caring for them in a way that points them to Jesus, the only one that can truly save their soul. God, this morning, as we reflect on that question, do I really love you in a way that's incorruptible? I have no doubt that each of us in here can think of ways that we fail at that over and over again. God, I pray that we would confess those sins to you, confess those difficulties to you. God, remove in our lives the foreign gods that we so often put in place, disobeying the Ten Commandments of having no other God before you. But we do that with our children. We do that with our spouses. We do that with work. We do that with money, all kinds of things, hobbies, whatever it might be. God, help us as believers to push those things aside and to focus on you and to love you more and more each day, surrendering our lives to you, knowing that we love you with an incorruptible love. And so, God, I pray that this morning we respond to your word how we should as we observe this Lord's Supper together. God, use it in our life, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.